Titus chapter 1, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's join our hearts together in a word of prayer, praying for the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that we have an inspired, infallible, and sufficient book, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. We thank you so much that you've given us this word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Because we know the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And in your light, we see light. And so we pray that you would help us. Help me in preaching. Get me out of the way. Just use me as a vessel to communicate your enduring and everlasting truth. And may everyone here take heed to what is preached. And for anyone who is here who is not in Christ, we pray that by your grace they would repent and believe the gospel. We thank you for this time. Bless it to our souls. Refresh us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We saw last Sabbath day the reality as I preach verses 10 through 14 as we're walking through the book of Titus. The reality of the false teachers in Crete, the Judaizers. Those who were preaching false doctrine, damnable heresies that was bringing hardship and destruction upon the people of God. They were subverting whole households, teaching what they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. They were teaching these heretical doctrines because of, for the sake of dishonest gain. And then one of the prophets of their own, Paul quotes as he's writing by the Holy Spirit, says, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he says, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them, the false teachers, sharply, that they may be sound the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And so he's warning them, And I told you last week that this was the reason why elders were so important in the church. Because verse 9, elders are to be men who hold fast the faithful word as they've been taught, that they may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And then the first word of verse 10 is, For, after saying elders must be men of sound doctrine to exhort the people of God, to convict the false teachers, for there are many insubordinate idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So the elders are so important to have godly elders in the church, not just to feed the sheep of Christ, but to also speak against and warn God's people against wolves. Because just like in Paul's day, sadly but truly, there will be false teachers until the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There will be those who teach false doctrine, For the sake of dishonest gain. The prosperity gospel is not new. In the first century there was people teaching things. Because of the love of money. 
and they were Judaizers. And I told you that the Judaizers, their key problem was they were saying you needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved by God. Christ alone was not sufficient. And this is what Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, was all about. That they were disputing with them and debating with them about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And that Christ alone was sufficient to save. Now verse 15 and 16 is really just a continuation of that. Of the reality of the importance of warning them against the false teachers and even false brethren. So the main point of this sermon is... To the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving have their mind and conscience defiled in professing to know God, but in works they deny him. So to the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving have their mind and conscience defiled in professing to know God, but in works they deny him. So my first point, to the pure, all things are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. My second point, the defiled and unbelieving have their mind and conscience defiled. The the defiled and unbelieving have their mind and conscience defiled. And my third point, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. So again, my first point, to the pure, all things are pure. That's how verse 15 begins. To the pure, all things are pure. You might be thinking, what, what does this have to do with what he's been talking about? Well, <clears throat> we saw last Lord's Day the reality that <clears throat> these false teachers, <clears throat> these false teachers were introducing in the church <clears throat> doctrines and commandments of men. They were saying things like we saw in Colossians, touch not, taste not, handle not. They were introducing Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. They were introducing in the church doctrines and teachings that were not coming from the mouth of God, but were coming from man-made traditions that they had invented. But then he describes in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. The pure here is describing the true child of God, the true believer in Jesus Christ. To them, to the pure, all things are pure. And This is actually a description that the Bible gives about the child of God. The child of God is described as pure. Probably the most classic text about that would be Matthew 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so we see this is a description of the true child of God. To the pure All things are pure. We know that by nature, we come into this world not pure, of course. We come in the world born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We're conceived in sin. The moment we are conceived in our mother's womb, we are tainted with sin and we are depraved in sin. So the moment we are conceived, we are conceived in sin. And so this is not true of us by nature. By nature, we come in the world polluted, defiled, evil, wicked, abominable. We come in the world without hope and without God. We come in the world without the ability to know God or seek God. And so by nature, no one is good. No one is pure. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. No one wants God. No one longs after God. There is no one good. No, not one. That's our condition by nature. 
But when God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, when God takes us from being an old creature to a new creature, a new creation in Christ, we are therefore can say, everything, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And therefore, it is right to call the people of God pure in heart. We've been purified by the blood of Christ because he has, by himself, when he had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But he also not only purifies us in our justification, but he purifies our hearts because now we have a new nature that loves what is pure and hates what is defiled. And so the child of God can be truly described as pure. To the pure, all things are pure. Let me show you this. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, we also see there that God's people are described as pure. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, he says, Paul, by the Holy Spirit to Timothy, says, Flee also useful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So he describes God's people as those who call on the Lord out of pure hearts. To the pure, all things are pure. And that makes perfect sense that he would say that, because obviously Paul knew what Jesus taught, again in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in hearts, for they shall see God. So we are purified by sin through the blood of Christ, and we are purified by the work of the Holy Spirit in our souls to make us more and more love what is pure and hate what is evil. What this doesn't mean, just for clarity, it cannot mean that we are perfectly pure in this life. Of course, it can't mean that. But it does mean we are sincerely pure because we have been regenerated, given a new heart, given a new nature, and we are risen to newness of life. We are risen to newness of life. It's very interesting, the, the language that the Bible uses for God's people. I mean, if you think about Psalm 1, some of you might have Psalm 1 memorized. But Psalm 1, right at the end, says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's interesting there. It's contrasting the righteous, God's people, and the ungodly who perish. For the fruit, uh, we also see that throughout the scriptures, the God's people are described as the pure. They're described as new creations. They're described as the righteous. And again, here we see that they are described as the pure. And so to the pure, all things are pure. So what that means is unlike the Judaizers who were putting commandments and doctrines of men upon the people of God, things that were God said were good, they were saying were not good, and therefore they were not teaching accurately. But to God's people, they know that the things that God has given are good. And they're pure if they are used in the way that God has intended them. We see this if you turn with me to Matthew 15. We see Jesus addressing the issue of these things with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 10. Matthew 15, starting at verse 10. We see Jesus here contrasting the doctrines and commandments of men and what actually defiles a man. So to the pure, we know what actually defiles us, but we know that things that we'll see that enter the mouth, they don't defile a man. Verse 10 of chapter 15 of Matthew. It says, when he had called the multitudes to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. 
Now what goes in the mouth defiles a man. But what comes out of the mouth, I think I might have misread that. Now what goes in the mouth defiles a man. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not, do you not yet understand that what enters the mouth goes in the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the hearts, and they defile a man. For out of the heart perceive evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile man. So we see Jesus is contrasting here what actually defiles a man. The Pharisees had this man-made tradition that you had to wash your hands. And this was not about cleanliness like we think about today. This was about a religious ritual that they thought purified someone and made someone clean. And Jesus is saying that this is just a tradition of the elders. This is something that God does not want. You're actually nullifying the word of God because of your traditions. And Jesus is trying to say to them, whether you wash your hands or not religiously, that doesn't defile a man. It's a man-made tradition. What defiles a man is what comes out of the heart. That's what defiles a man. And then he, he names things that can come out of the heart. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man. So to the pure, they know that food and drink doesn't defile a man. They know that these things are not what defiles it. What comes out of the heart that leads to actual sin against God's law, not the doctrines and commandments of men. That doesn't defile a man. But then he names as evil thoughts could be all 10 because evil thoughts is breaking any of the 10. Murder, 6th commandment. Adultery, 7th commandment. Fornication, 7th commandment. Thefts, 8th commandment. commandment. False witness, ninth commandment. Blasphemy, 3rd commandment. So he goes right to the Decalogue and says, these are the things that defile man. They come out of the hearts. But taste not, touch not, handle not. From the doctrines and commandments of men, they don't defile man. So to the pure... All things are pure. Let me also show you in Ephesians chapter 2. Actually, before we go there, let's look at Romans 14. Romans 14 and verse 14. We see in this context, this is in the context of Christian liberty, and there is a dispute amongst the, the church in Rome about things that they could and could not do, probably carried over from the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, whether ceremonial days or ceremonial dietary law. But we see in verse 14 of Romans 14, Romans 14, 14, Romans 14, 14, we see there the reality of how Paul, by the Holy Spirit, describes things like food and days and drink that were part of the ceremonial law that were passing away. He says, verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him is unclean. What he's getting at here is food, drink, days, these things connected with the ceremonial law, Christ has fulfilled them. There's nothing that's unclean. Food and drink, there's nothing unclean. But then he does describe to to the person that 
it is unclean to them. To them, it's unclean because they can't eat it or drink it by faith. But he's describing that there's nothing unclean of itself. He's describing the reality that to the pure, all things are pure. We know that everything is clean. If you turn also to Ephesians chapter 2, we see this reality of how Christ has come to abolish the ceremonial law, the, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. If you look at Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 18. Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. And what I'm trying to show you by taking you these texts of Scripture is to show you the reality of how these Judaizers were putting on people things that either were never instituted or things that are no longer instituted because of Christ's coming, his death and resurrection, and instituting the new covenant. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So what we see here, those, those ordinances, those law of commandments contain ordinances. They were for a time to separate Jew and Gentile. Christ has come and abolished that separation. He has brought the Jew and Gentile together in one body. He preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. And he has abolish those laws of commandments contain ordinances by his death upon the cross and therefore to keep up those ceremonial rituals that the judaizers wanted the people to keep up with like circumcision other things was to deny that jesus has come and has abolished those things that separate jew and gentiles and to the believer to the pure they knew that these things had passed away and these things are no longer binding upon us or if you look at colossians chapter 2 Colossians 2. I'm really trying to show you what I believe Paul by the Holy Spirit is getting at in Titus 1 about to the pure all things are pure. Because obviously, just to say this, he can't mean that everything is pure in the sense of things that are violations of God's moral law. Those things aren't pure. But he's talking about things that the Judaizers, there's commandments of men or applying the ceremonial law continually upon the people of God, even though Jesus has come. But Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So he's saying to them, don't let anyone judge you in food and drink. And what I think he means by that is the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Those things have passed away. No longer should someone be judged in food and drink. And no one should be judged connected with the ceremonial days of the Old Testament. New moons, or festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, which have passed away with the coming of Christ. I don't believe he's talking about the weekly Sabbath. I think he's talking in both contexts about the ceremonial rituals that were given to the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. Food and drink and holy days. And now they've passed away with Christ. So no one should judge. No one should put on someone the regulations of the dietary law or the old covenant festival days because they have passed away with the coming of Christ. And so what he is getting at for the people of God in Crete is to know that 
God has abolished these ceremonial laws. He does not want the people of God following the doctrines and commandments of men. And to the pure, all things are pure. There also could be, maybe connected with this a little bit, some Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an early church heresy that taught that material things were bad. The material world was bad and the spiritual world was good. That things that you could touch and handle, those things were bad. And therefore, they were bad in themselves. What the Bible teaches is those things are good that God has given, but they can be abused. But we do not, the Bible does not teach that things that God has given are bad in themselves. So it's possible that's a reality as well. That they were teaching things that God has given because they were material were bad. Where God's people know that they're not bad if they're given by God and used the way he wants. Like food and like alcohol and like marriage or whatever it might be. And we even see some of that talked about in 1 Timothy 4. If you turn to 1 Timothy 4, we see in 1 Timothy 4 this warning against what has been called asceticism, basically denying the, the good things that God has given as if it's a higher spirituality. In 1 Timothy 4, starting at verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So we see here there are people in the first century saying to people, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be godly, you shouldn't get married and you should abstain from foods which God gave to be enjoyed by those who believe and know the truth. They thought that spirituality was touch not, taste not, handle not. And as Colossians tells us, there is an appearance of wisdom in this self-imposed religion, but it does not help in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So it did not help them truly. But we see here that there are people who were saying, don't get married and don't enjoy food that God has given as a gift. Don't enjoy the good food that God has given. Don't enjoy the blessing of marriage because to do those things is a second class position. They are, they are lower class. And this can creep in today, even our own day, that, some, that celibacy in some religious circles is seen as a higher spiritual state. Or that you can be more spiritual if you abstain from things like different foods or alcohol, as if taking and not enjoying those things is somehow the height of spirituality. We still have that today. That if you really want to be spiritual, you would touch not, taste not, handle not. Because what people say is this. It's not the heart that's the problem. It's the substance that's the problem. You know what that is? It's Gnosticism. That's all that is. It's the substance is the problem, not the heart. When people overeat, it's not because the bread or the meat. It was because their heart was not satisfied with being content with what they had. When people get drunk, the wine is not the problem. It's their heart that wants more than what they should be content with. The substance is not the problem. To the pure, all things are pure. We receive God's good gifts. And we know that the substance in itself is not what's wrong. 
but it's our heart that misuses it. And this can, this can happen to people. This can happen to people with all types of things that can be good. They can have a bad experience with it or abuse it. And what they go to is the answer is not self-control and moderations. I have to be, get rid of it completely. That, that can be some people's answer. That the answer is I can't touch it, taste it, handle it, do anything with it because they think almost that the, the, the problem is not their heart, but it's, it's the substance. And so this can, this can happen to people. This can happen to people. Maybe someone had a bad experience and maybe gave in to sin as it related to sexual morality. And their answer, which would be wrong, is it's dirty and it's wrong all the time, which would be wrong. But some people could come to that conclusion. I had a bad experience. I sinned in this area. Therefore, the answer is touch not, taste not, handle not, etc. Don't, I'm never going to enter into it anyway. I'm not even going to get married. I'm not going to think about it because I think it's bad. Or someone has a bad experience with food and they, they, they say, you know what? I'm never going to touch it again. Or a bad experience with alcohol and say, the answer is alcohol is of the devil and it's demonic and it's wrong. All those things are superficial understandings of what the problem is. But to the pure, we know all things are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. And so the things that God has given to us are to be used in the way that God has given them for us. That's the answer. The answer isn't to say, you know what? I'm going to just be done with anything that God has given. Anything that's good, I'm going to be done with. No, that's not the answer. The answer is, let me use it in the way that God intended it's not, it's not wrong to enjoy alcohol. It's not wrong to enjoy marital intimacy. It's not wrong to enjoy good food as long as we use it the way God gave it to us. But there are people in the first century who are forbidding people to get married and commanding people to abstain from foods which God created to be received with those who believe and know the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. And the Judaizers were putting these commandments upon God's people that were doctrines and commandments of men that were either had passed away or were never instituted and they were putting bondage upon the people of God. And so let me just make this crystal clear. The answer for our sanctification. It is, it is a superficial and a shallow way to say the best way for me to be sanctified is to never enjoy something that is a good gift of God. The way that we grow in our sanctification is by enjoying in moderation and self-control what God has given Because it's actually a better testimony to the world, brothers and sisters, when we're able to use God's good gifts and use them in self-control. Because we're able to say, this is a good gift. This is good. I'm enjoying this, but I'm able to do it in a way by the Holy Spirit with self-control. That's a better testimony to the world than say, touch not, taste not, handle not. Because it looks good. Paul says it has an appearance of wisdom. But you know what it is? It's self-imposed religion. It's will worship. And it's, doesn't, it has a false humility to it. He even says that in Colossians. It's a, it's a false humility. But it has no power in truly stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so the answer is not telling people, touch not, taste not, handle not. The answer is to tell people, this is a good gift from God. This is a blessing to enjoy intimacy, uh, alcohol, food, whatever it might be. Whatever these good gifts are. But use them in the way that God designed them. Use them in the way that God design them. And so we see that reality to the pure, all things are pure. But now my second point, the defiled and unbelieving have their mind and conscience defiled. 
So he says in verse 15, again, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. So unlike the pure, those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So if the pure is a description of God's true people, the defiled and unbelieving is a description of the unbeliever, the sinner, the lost man, the man who is still dead in his sin. And for that man, nothing is pure. Why why would that be true? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. They can never enjoy the good gifts of life in a pure way because everything they touch, they taint because they do not glorify God with it. They do not do it by faith. They do not do it according to God's word. And therefore, everything they touch is defiled because they do not do it by faith in Christ. They do not do it for the glory of God. And therefore, they come into the world defiled. They come into the world unbelieving. And they stay that way until they come to repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, nothing is pure to them They cannot enjoy the good gifts of God as God intended because they don't do it for his glory and by faith in Christ. And whatever is not done by faith or from faith is sin. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so for them, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. Their entire being is defiled because they are lost in their Sin. They are dead in trespasses and sins. Their mind is defiled. Their conscience is defiled. And therefore, their only hope is to find redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. A person who is defiled and unbelieving, every faculty of their person is defiled. How they think is defiled. How they feel is defiled. How they act is defiled. Their conscience, their mind, their heart, their will, everything about themselves is defiled. Because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so for them, nothing is pure. They cannot use God's good gifts rightly because they either abuse them or they certainly never use God's good gifts for his glory. And so because of this, their mind and conscience are defiled. This is the condition of every person that's born in the world. They're born in the world defiled. And this is the condition of every single person until they come to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Every single person is defiled before God. Every single person is lost in a corrupt condition. Every single person is without hope and without God in the world in their lost condition. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. And so this is true. So these Judaizers, what he's saying about these Judaizers who were saying they were maybe super spiritual or they were those who really knew God or were really performing acts of obedience because they were circumcising and keeping the law of Moses and putting upon God's people doctrines and commandments of men. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says about them, they are actually defiled, unbelieving, and their mind and conscience are defiled. You Christians who have Christ and are trusting only in Christ for your acceptance before God, you're the pure ones. But to those who are trusting in something besides Christ, maybe alongside of Christ, but besides him, they are defiled. They are unbelieving. Their mind, their conscience is defiled. And so this is what we see here. They're someone without Christ. Everything they do is defiled. And that's why. That's why they need salvation in Jesus Christ. Because until someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, 
I forget which Puritan who said it, but a Puritan said something like, their best works are like splendid sins. Until someone comes to faith in Christ, an unbeliever's works are just, even their best works are just like splendid sins. Or to put it in biblical language, their best righteousness without Christ is like filthy rags before God. And this is why if you are here and you are without faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not repented, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, right now your mind and your conscience is defiled. And therefore, the only way that you can come to be the pure and therefore enjoy God's good gifts as he gave them is to trust wholly and solely and completely in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of your sin and to believe the gospel of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, his death to wipe away our sins, his burial to show that he actually died, his resurrection as the proof that his death accomplished what God the Father appointed to accomplish. And only by faith in Christ can you have the gift of everlasting life. And so right now, you are in a condition of being defiled, unbelieving, your mind and conscience are defiled. And you might be saying, well, that sounds very strong. And it is very strong. But it's strong so that you might see your need for Christ. And by God's grace, put your faith in Christ, who alone can save you, who alone can take you out of defiled condition to purified. From your mind and your conscience being defiled to having a new heart with new desires that love God and love others. So my desire for you, if you're without Christ, is to be among the pure. And it should be a a great blessing for us to realize that if we were once lost, but now we're found. If we were once blind, but now we see. My beloved brother or sister, you are the pure. And therefore, to you, all things are pure. And you're able to enjoy God's good gifts. It doesn't mean there's an obligation that you, that you partake in everything under the sun. There's no obligation in a social setting to partake of everything under the sun. But what you do know, that if you do in moderation and self-control, to you, it can be a blessing. Because we do not want to have for you, if you've been redeemed and made pure, for your sanctification. You do not want to touch not, taste not, handle not. Theology of sanctification. You want a reality of, can I use this thing that God has given in a way that glorifies him? There are some things, obviously, as it relates to the moral law of God that we must not do. We must not commit adultery. We must not steal. We must not commit fornication. We must not bear false witness. Yes. But as it relates to things that are not commanded or forbidden, we have liberty to enjoy them under Christ. And it does not sanctify us or make us any better to have a theology of things that God calls good of taste not, touch not, handle not. And so what a blessing it is to be in Christ and to be among those who are the pure, who know all things are pure. But now my third point. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Verse 16 says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So he continues to talk about those he described at the end of verse 15. Their mind and conscience are defiled. But these are not lost people in the world that have no interest in God. Those who say, I don't believe in God exists. That's not the people he has in mind here. He's not talking about those who would say, I'm an atheist or agnostic or secular. He has in mind people here that say that they know God. People who would say that they are Christians. People who would say that they are in Christ and going to heaven. That's who he has in mind. 
He doesn't have in mind people who say, I don't want anything to do with God and I am just a, a secular person. He says, they, those he has in mind who are defiled and unbelieving, they profess to know God. There are many people in our day, sadly but truly, or at least some, who say that they know God, but by the way they live and by the way they act, they profess something different by the way they live and act. They say that they're Christians. They, they would say, I know God, but by the way they live, they deny him. That was happening in the first century, just like it's happening today. There are people, even today probably, in church pews or church seats that are sitting that would say, I do know God, but their life gives no evidence whatsoever that they have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. They are those who, as Paul by the Spirit also describes, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They, they might be able to say the right things, but their lifestyle, their choices, their decisions say they don't know God. Like Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. And therefore, there's many, there can be many people, even our own generation, who would say they are part of the visible church. Maybe even been baptized. Maybe even take the Lord's Supper. Maybe are on a church roll. But none of those things save a person. And there can be people who have done all those things, got baptized, take the Lord's Supper, are on a membership roll, and will not go to heaven. Because they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him. And therefore, when some people talk about the unbelief, the hypocrisy, the sin, the carnality, whatever they might say about the church, a lot of times it's because those who say they are part of the church are not in truth. They are amongst those who Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And sadly, because you have people that can creep in who are like that, they give the church a bad name because they say, oh, the, being a Christian doesn't do any good for anybody. They're just like us. They, they, they practice like us. They live like us. They act like us. But in truth, it's because many in our day who say they know God don't really know him at all. Maybe you have friends or family like this. Maybe you have coworkers like this who would say that they know God. But you're not trying to be judgmental towards them, but just as you evaluate their life, their priorities, their decisions, you say, by their works, they deny that they know God. They'll tell me that they know God, but the way they live and act and the decisions, they show that they don't really know him. They profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11, we see as Paul is describing by the Holy Spirit his perils or his trials, he describes interestingly one of the things that was a trial or a peril to him. 2 Corinthians 11, I'm going to start my reading at verse 25. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 25. Second Corinthians 11 verse 25. It says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. And listen to this, the last thing in verse 26. In perils among false 
brethren. In perils among false brethren. Paul says, one of the great trials of my life. He even puts it in the reality of being stoned and shipwrecked. And he puts in that list one of his great trials, his great sorrows, was when he would go, what he would see is he would be among false brethren. Those who said they know God, but in works and I, I mean, what does he call them? False brethren. Or we might use the language in our context, false converts. Those who are not truly Christian, but say they are. Paul had that trial in his own life among false brethren. And sadly but truly, that can be a trial and a peril in our own generation of people who say they know God, but in works deny him. We see here that, well, let me, let me read this quote by Earl Hulse. He says, quote, When the reality of sin and its radical effects on the whole man are bypassed, the idea takes over that it simply takes a decision for Christ to bring about the new birth. A decision for Christ is all that is needed. This is easy believism in which repentance from sin is sidelined. Those who make a decision receive a pronouncement that they are saved. This proves premature. False converts are the outcome. The theory of the carnal Christian has been invented in order to accommodate those who have made a decision but who bear no marks of the new birth, end quotes. And so we see there, what is easy believism? You tip your hat, no, no call for repentance, no call for the cost of discipleship. Just you tip your hat to Jesus and we pronounce you saved. And that causes people who think they're Christians because they made a decision for Christ. They shook a preacher's hand. They signed a card. They walked an aisle. And therefore they think I'm saved, but they give no evidence They give no evidence whatsoever that they have the Spirit of God indwelling them. Why? Because of easy believism, which is a danger in our day. A danger in our day of getting people to repeat words while not mentioning about repentance or obedience or these type of things and saying they're saved because they repeated words after you. I'm not saying people don't get saved like that. I actually got saved that way, interestingly. I was at a camp and they did the sinner's prayer and God genuinely used that in my heart. So I'm not one of those people who say God can't use it. But what I want to say is we don't base how we evangelize based on something that happened. Because that is how God saved me. I, I think I raised my hand and I genuinely repented and put my trust in Christ. Would I do that way now? No. So people can get saved that way, but that's not the way it should be because what it can lead someone to do is either trust in their prayer and have no desire for true repentance, and you ask them why they're saved, they might say, well, because I prayed a prayer 10 years ago. Because I walked an aisle five years ago. And then they, they trust, not in Jesus, but they trust in their experience or their decision instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would profess to know God, but by the way they live, they deny him. And so we know that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if a person has true justifying faith, they've been made alive to believe and therefore are a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. I think sometimes we forget how transformative it is for someone to come to Christ. Sometimes we we downplay what a radical thing. 
Not that it's always radical. I mean, we pray that our children would come to faith at young ages and they wouldn't have a quote-unquote radical experience. We want them to really never know a day that they didn't believe in Jesus. But if someone is truly in Christ, it makes a difference. It makes a difference upon their life. It doesn't keep someone in the same place. They don't stay the same. They change. Otherwise, the Bible is not true. If people don't change when they get saved, the Bible is not true. Because you know how the Bible speaks about regeneration and conversion? It speaks about being made alive. Risen in newness of life. A new creation. A dead person being made alive. A heart of stone being taken out. A heart of flesh being put in. A resurrection. This is how the Bible describes what it means to be in Christ. It's to be born again. And that has become sadly just religious language. But to be born again actually means something. You think differently. You, you speak differently. You feel differently. You act differently because you've been made alive by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we need to realize that conversion actually changes a person's heart and life. Sometimes it can happen slowly because of lack of good discipleship and these type of things. But there will be growth. Just like you know a baby is, is good if when they come out, they start to cry. You know a child of God has been made alive by the Holy Spirit or a person has been made alive to become a child of God by the Holy Spirit because they bear the fruit of the Spirit. Not because they become sinless, but something changes in their hearts and in their life. And so when people say the church is just as worldly as the world, the church is just as as sinful as the world, the church is just as evil as the world, we can say maybe people who say they're part of the church But the true church is marked by genuine repentance, genuine faith, and genuine heartfelt obedience. The true church is marked by that. So there are many who say they know God. We we acknowledge that. But you shouldn't take what Christianity is based on an experience. But what does God say it means to be a Christian? What does God say it means to be a Christian? Because there are many who profess, but in works deny him they have a form of godliness but deny its power and the new testament warns us of these things jesus talks about false teachers that they come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves they can look the parts or john by the holy spirit talks talks about people who they went out from us but if they were of us they would remain with us but they went out to show that they were never of us he doesn't say well he they show that they lost their salvation he says they left because they showed they were never of the truth that's first john two nineteen. they leave because they never were of us and so it's so important that we know that the church of jesus christ is not perfect but they're marked by sincere believers and sadly there are those who blaspheme the name of god just like they did amongst the jews they blaspheme the name of god because the hypocrisy and sin of those who say they're part of the church Because they teach others, but they do not teach themselves, as it says in Romans chapter 2. And so this is the reality. And then he describes what these people are like. He says, they're abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. He says, first, they're abominable. They're loathed by God. You you have to think there's nothing more, there's some things that God, God must very much abominate and hate. Those who are false teachers especially. And those who are false brethren, especially those who are false teachers, because we know there's a a stricter judgment upon those who claim to be teachers in Christ's church. And they are abominable to God. God loathes the ungodly. 
Because they profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. They're like the false prophets of the Old Testament who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And therefore, they are abomination to God. What? You can't really get stronger language than that. That those who profess to know God, but in works deny him, they are abominable to God. And then he says they're disobedient. Their life is marked by disobedience. They're not marked by sincere obedience to God. They're marked, the course of their life is marked by lawlessness. Because Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many, many works in your name? And what will we say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. And then he describes why he never knew them. You who practice lawlessness. They were disobedient. They said Christ was Lord, but they lived as if he wasn't. Jesus himself says in the Gospels, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? And so these people are marked by disobedience, not a a heartfelt obedience to God. Some of you might have tender consciences, so... Let me, let me pause a little bit to help you. What this is not describing is people who know their sin and stumble and fall and grieve over it and don't want it and flee from it. That's not what this, this is describing. If that's you, you should have great assurance of your salvation. Because I love the verse in Psalm 51 where it says, A broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. So if you have a broken, contrite heart to your sin, if you're grieved when you sin, if you don't want to be disobedient, if you stumble and fall, you're not marked by those who profess to know God, but in works and not him. This is talking about people who have no brokenness over sin, no desire for obedience, no desire to change, no true faith in Christ, and they are just living as if, yes, saying God is, they believe God, but they don't act like it at all. So if you're here, because I know I'm, I'm preaching from all I can tell to mainly Christians here. I don't want you to leave with assurance taken away that shouldn't happen. Because if you're in Christ, you're going to stumble and fall. We wish we could be perfect in this life. That's every child of God says, I wish I never sinned ever again. But sadly, but truly, God in wise purposes has chosen to leave remaining sin, even in the holiest saint on earth. But the way you know that you're not amongst this list is how you respond to your sin. You don't make excuses for it. You repent of it. You turn from it. You flee from it. You grieve over it. You have, as the psalmist says, a broken and contrite heart. Because to this one I will look, Jehovah, the living and true God says. To this one I will look, to him who is poor and of a contrite heart or contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who Jehovah will look to in love and in care. So it doesn't mean that we don't stumble as fall as God's people, but it means that our heart is now different towards sin. Maybe you can remember before you came to Christ, you didn't care about sin. You might have felt a little bit bad here and there, but you didn't really care. And then you came to Christ. And maybe things that you would have been, you would have laughed at people before if they would have felt bad about. Now it eats you up. You feel so grieved over it. Even maybe to tears. Why? Because you've been given a new heart. Why do you grieve over your sin that you wouldn't have before? Because you've been given a new heart. You've been given new desires. You are the pure. You are the pure in heart. And therefore you'll see God. So the disobedient here is not the 
the struggling saint who loves God and wants to obey him and just knows the, the fight against sin. It's one who is indifferent to God and his commandments. And then we see lastly, and disqualified for every good work. And disqualified for every good work. The, the person who is lost in their sin, nothing they do is good before God. Nothing they do is pleasing to God. Nothing they do is accepted by God. They are disqualified from every good work. Because their best works, so to speak, as God says in Isaiah 64, 6, their best works to God is like a filthy rag. Their best works to the living God, God says is nothing more to me than a filthy rag. They're disqualified from every good work. Nothing that they do or say or think or act is a good work because everything they do is not done by faith and is not done in obedience to the living God. And so therefore they're disqualified for every good work. But let me apply this to the child of God. Let me turn this. If we are those who profess to know God and in work show that we are truly his children, what are, what, what are we in relationship to God? We are not the abominable. We are the dearly beloved. We are the loved of God. Sometimes we forget how good it is to be loved by God. My beloved brethren, if you are in Christ sincerely, you are loved by God. You're not the abominable. You were if you were without Christ. Now you are the loved of God. You're no longer a child of wrath, but you are a child of grace and mercy and compassion. If you are truly in Christ, you're not the disobedient, but you're marked by obedience, not perfectly, but sincerely. You are like those who are described in the book of Romans. Your obedience has been evident, has been made known to all. You are the obedient. You love God's commandments. You say like David, oh, how I love your law. You're able to say with sincerity those things. And you are not those who are disqualified for every good work, but you are instead able by God's grace to perform good works. Do you know as a Christian that God actually loves your good works? It's not true that a Christian's works are like filthy rags. A Christian's works are received by God because they're done in Christ. And if they're done sincerely, he loves them. He is pleased with them. We can please our Heavenly Father. Maybe some people grew up with a father that you could never please. Praise God that our Heavenly Father is not like that. He loves to be pleased. And with the sincere obedience of his children, he loves to be pleased by his people. And he loves when we do good works. And therefore, those who are in Christ are able to do good works by the Holy Spirit. And so we have the ability, by God's grace, to walk in good works. We are the loved of God. We are the obedient And we are qualified by the Holy Spirit for every good work. Again, if you're here, though, without Christ, the only way that you can be set free from the condition of being defiled and unbelieving, the only way that you can be delivered from being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in Christ. Only by that can you be redeemed. Only by Christ in repentance and faith can you go from being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified from every good work to faith in Christ and therefore loved by God in salvation, obedient, and qualified for every good work. Come to Christ and find salvation. And for God's people, we are the pure in heart. And so let us be those, may you and me be people that love and appreciate God's good blessings. Let's appreciate God's good blessings. Let's not have a theology of touch not, touch not, taste not, handle not. The doctrines and commandments of men. But let's enjoy God's good gifts. Let's be thankful for them. Receive them with thankfulness and joy. Knowing that God is kind to give us good things. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. 
And so let us be those who are thankful for God's good gifts. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the good things of this life. It's actually sinful not to. Because those things for the child of God are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And the two things in 1 Timothy 4 are marriage. It's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. It's a good thing. And foods. And therefore we can enjoy those things and be thankful. You should be thankful for your husband or for your wife. You should be thankful for the good foods that God gives us. These are good things. And therefore we should not be like the aesthetics who say the, the height of spirituality is denying every good thing in life. Actually, true spirituality is enjoying God, God's good gifts in faith and in love. Help us also know the difference. We need wisdom to know what's the difference between enjoying God good, God's good gifts and abusing them. You need wisdom for that. I need wisdom for that. But what shows us that is not the doctrines and commandments of men, but God's law. That shows us what is a good use of what he's given and what's a bad use. It's the commandments of God that show, am I using this rightly or abusing this? And what a sad reality it is. And what an important thing we need to know as God's people, that there are those who can profess to know God, but in works to know him. We must know that reality. It was true in Paul's day. It'll be true till Jesus returns. That there will be people who profess to know God, but in works deny him. And therefore we must, if they're in membership here or we know them and love them, we must have the courage to speak the truth and love to them and warn them of the danger that just professing does not mean you are in Christ. We need to have courage to do that, to lovingly tell people, you'll be known by your fruits. You'll be known by the way you act and live. And I love you so much that I don't want you to perish thinking you're a Christian when you give no evidence that you are. We must have courage to do that. And what a blessing it is for us that the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we were rebels, hell-bent sinners, lost, he took upon himself a human nature, lived a life perfectly for us, died upon the cross to satisfy God's wrath, to be buried in the grave, resurrected from the dead, that we, by his grace, repented and put our faith in him and therefore have been made new. And therefore have a new nature and are able to love him and love others as he has given us commandment. What a blessing it is to be the pure, to be redeemed. And what a blessing we look forward to because we are the pure in heart if we're in Christ. That we will be able to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. But that would not be true unless Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sin. And so let us live and act and walk in the truth as we know that we've been redeemed for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to apply these things to our heart. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.